All right. Uh, in Second Peter chapter three, um, we are in the the section that's what I'm particularly interested in is verse seventeen. And, and, and I'll, you have to remember all that's been going on in the previous parts of this chapter, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But the first three verses, I called that hope attacked. It's the false teachers are. Uh, mocking and scoffing at this idea that Jesus is coming back. Where is he? You know, that kind of thing. And they mocked that. And so Peter then masterfully goes through a series of, uh, of important indicators that God is sovereign and does intervene in history at his will. In creation, in, in the flood, and in the, coming, uh, in the coming judgment, and so on. And then secondly, uh, verse 8, he gives us God's perspective about time. A day to God is like a thousand years. A thousand years to God is like a day. God's eternal. God's not temporal like you and me. God is infinite, not finite like you and me. So don't try to force God uh, in terms of eternity on your perspective of time. God is not governed by time. He is above and beyond time. And then thirdly is kind of where we... Um, where we are uh, is the whole concept of the day of the Lord. That begins in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, um, literally fall apart, break up, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And so Peter uses this profoundly important concept of the Bible called the day of the Lord. Uh, it is all over the Old Testament, uh, especially in the Minor Prophets, also in Isaiah. Uh, it, sometimes it's just shortened to the day or the Lord's day. There are many variations on that. But it is probably one of the most, in my view, that's why I wrote this paper, in my view, it's one of the most neglected concepts in the Bible. And yet it's all over the Bible. First, Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul devotes a whole chapter to it. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, he devotes a whole chapter to it, and he, God and Jesus talks about it. So it's something that, at least in a cursory way, because I am not going to go all through this paper. You, you're probably, oh, thank the Lord! I thought he was going to go through the whole paper, but uh, I just thought I'd give it to you. Um, it was emailed to you. You, you do with it what you want, but. Um, it seems to me that if it's used that frequently throughout the Word of God, we better have a good idea of what it involves. And so um, it really has two dimensions to it. Um, and that's kind of what I summarize in the first two paragraphs of this, this little paper that I shared with you. Um, and there are so many references throughout the Scriptures. But if you can think of two ideas... You've got it. It's God breaking into history for judgment, followed by blessing. If if you have that concept, that's pretty much paraphrasing what I wrote here. But if you've got the you've got the concept, it's God breaking into history, and that fits with Peter's theme in this in this part of chapter three. God is sovereign, and God does intervene in history. He's not some distant landlord. He is overseeing and governing and administering his world. Now, that world is in rebellion, uh, particularly Earth, is in rebellion against him. So that's what the plan of redemption is all about. 
But he does intervene, and it is used in terms of judgment followed by blessing. I'm thinking, for example, the book of Zephaniah, which I doubt most of you have studied that book. But it's a little minor prophet, only a couple chapters, three chapters. And he uses the day of the Lord in two ways. Where the Lord intervenes in history and judgment to discipline Judah, sends them into exile. But it will be followed 70 years later by blessing. They'll be restored back to their city, Jerusalem. He also uses it in chapter 3 about the coming day of the Lord. <clears throat> when the day when God will intervene in history for judgment, the 70th week of Daniel, what Jesus calls the tribulation, which will be followed by blessing, the return of Jesus Christ, and the establishment of the kingdom. So the day of the Lord is, is a phrase used in the Bible of God intervening in history for his purposes. Judgment followed by blessing. And if you have that sentence down and that concept, you've got it. People in the pew of your church, you look at them, do you know what the day of the Lord is? No, I do. Do you want to know? <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke, but nobody got it. So <clears throat> anyway, it, it, the, the other thing about, and if you have the paper, I'm just going to read to you. In the middle of that first page, that shorter of the, of the paragraphs, the judgment imagery of the Old Testament text dealing with the day of the Lord is important for understanding how the term is applied in the New Testament. And these are all the words and phrases out of the Old Testament that are used in the New Testament. Darkness, gloom, shaking, trembling, quaking of the earth, mountains and hills, signs and wonders in the heavens, wrath, fierce anger, fire, labor pains, terror, fear, panic, cup of judgment, winepress, locusts, famine, desolation, sacrifice, gathering a nation for judgment, call to repentance, etc. They're all phrases and, and, and terms that are used in the Old Testament to describe the day of the Lord and, are brought, and in the New Testament as well. When you read the Olivet Discourse of Jesus in Matthew 24, when he's answering the questions of the disciples, and they, they were sitting on the Mount of Olives and say, Jesus, look at, that, look at that temple. Isn't that beautiful? It was the, the temple of Jerusalem that Herod had built. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, not <clears throat> one stone is going to be left on top of another in that building going to all be gone. And they sensed something cataclysmic, and they said, okay, Lord, what's the sign of the end of the age? And what's the sign of your return, sign of your coming? And when Jesus answers that question, those two questions, he uses, this is the language he uses. All the language of the Old Testament, day of the Lord for judgment. Judgment is coming. But then, uh, in, in again, following Matthew 22, then you have that cataclysmic intervention where Jesus returns, he comes back, and then there's blessing. So the day of the Lord summarizes God's right as the sovereign Lord of this, of this universe to intervene, to intervene for judgment, to hold his rebellious planet accountable, but also to bring it blessing after, after judgment occurs. So you know, there's a lot more we could say about this. I gave you a bunch of charts, which are essentially PowerPoint slides that I use in this whole area when I teach it. And so uh, unless you have a lot of questions, I'm going to repeat what Forrest Gump said 21 years ago. That's all I have to say about that.
but Fred wants me to. So on the on the second page, um, when um, you use the um, example of a rock striking and crushing the statue, mm -hmm. in Hebrew, rock. Well, how would that compare to to rock and? and uh, it, there, I don't think there's any, you're thinking like a Matthew uh, 16 yeah. there. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any real comparison particularly of the word rock, it's just rock, because the rock that strikes the statue and crushes it is identified in Daniel chapter 7 then as Jesus, the Son of Man. Okay, so, well, that, that was my... Point where my question was: Is that is that reference that rock is Jesus? That's right. That rock is Jesus. And then going to Matthew, then you know, upon this rock. You know, but, but, that would fit because I think what what Jesus says about Peter is referring in the Petra is referring to his confession several verses earlier. Right. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living. And the, the Petra would, would be. A, a building block on that rock foundation. Yeah, I mean, it, it, rock is a metaphor that's used throughout the Bible of stability and solidness. When you know, Psalms say, oh, Lord, you are my rock. And that, of course, is, is just a, a reference to stability and, and uh, certainty and so on. But that, there's a lot in this little paper, but I, I walk you through Daniel um, Daniel gives us kind of the framework for the day of the Lord and God intervening in history. And then other parts of the Old Testament and New Testament fill in. That's the right, proper way to study prophecy anyway, but you probably already know that. But I do look at the concept of the day of the Lord as the title of the paper indicates as an integrating theme of biblical prophecy. And when Peter is using that term here, um, those who have studied the Old Testament and some of the people who read his uh, letter first, the first people to read his letter were Jewish people. And they would know what he was talking about. So the day of the Lord is just an important biblical concept. And I guess for now, unless you want to talk about it some more, I'm done with it. I just wanted to introduce you to it and give you the opportunity to study it more if you wish. And that's why uh, I made this available to you. Any other questions? So you can see, now we'll tie the threads together from Second Peter, you can see what he's doing. Don't, uh, don't allow the mocking and scoffing to occur when it comes to the teaching that the Lord is coming back for us. Don't let people mock that. Don't, don't, don't let them scoff at that. Because he is. And he gives you this. He gives you the several reasons why you can still hold to that with integrity and certainty. Okay. Now, final part, and then there's the little conclusion of the book. But the final part is, if all that is true, how should that affect how you live now? And that's I call that hope applied. That's verse eleven uh, through verse sixteen. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Continuing into verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. 
But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, how should it affect how we live? Should it affect how we live? Yes, it should. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to say yes. I was thinking maybe somebody's going to say no, it shouldn't. <clears throat> it should. And, and so that he's asking that kind of rhetoric. Since this is going to happen, all these things are going to be dissolved, what sort of people are we to be? And then he answers, in lives or in living, you could translate that, holiness and godliness. There is a principle, I know I've shared it here, before, future promises of God should affect present behavior. The future promises of God should affect present behavior. That's what hope is. Hope gives you a reason for living. Hope gives you a reason for living the kind of life he describes it, a life of holiness and godliness because he's coming back. I know I've said this a million times. My mother used to say to me when I was a little boy, and I was a real rascal, Jimmy, do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? I mean, not, you know, it was fairly effective. <laughs> it really was. It was a fairly effective uh, premise that she kept flashing in front of me. But that's a very biblical concept that it should motivate how you live now. I know I've said this too. I studied under a man who said, if you knew Jesus was coming back in exactly six weeks, how would that affect how you would live those six weeks? What's the correct answer to that question? It really should not affect how you live. Because you are living, and this is what Peter's saying, you're living with the premise that Jesus could come back at any moment. So how should that affect how I live? It should have a pretty significant effect. It's a source of comfort, a source of certainty, but also a source of conviction. I want to hear him say to me, well done. I, 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 I want to be doing what's pleasing to him. So that's kind of what Peter's getting at here, that it really should affect how you live. And I saw a hand somewhere. Brett, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Woody kind of encapsulated others, um, you know, that perhaps, uh, what do you refer to last week, is in the family, <coughs> that we would like to see come mm. to Christ. Mm. And, and that's my thing. And we're not responsible for our <coughs> salvation, but we're responsible for the message that's right. that goes out. And if there were only six weeks... Um, I think it would. Uh, I think I would want to spend more time with people and less with my job. Since you and I don't have the privilege of that kind of information, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That we should therefore always be seeking to represent Christ in words and deed, because we don't know when he's coming back. If we had that privileged information, it probably would affect how we live even more dramatically and more intensely. 
But that's why there's a, there's a little phrase in the Thessalonian letters you could easily translate, we live with tiptoe expectation. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's on the edge. I mean, you are ready at any moment with that tiptoe expectation that he could come back now within the next second. And so, I mean, that's what Peter's really getting at here. But then he gives a really interesting, it's a, it's a, it's a participle of manner, they call it. But what does that kind of life look like where you are living with the tiptoe expectation and the certainty that this could happen at any moment, which is what people are mocking and scoffing, how the chapter began? Did you see it? Verse 12, waiting for and hastening. That's a very interesting participle. Waiting for, got it. I'm waiting for with that expectation and that certainty and that excitement. But then he adds, hastening. What does he mean by that? That's what the old church said, Lord Jesus, come quickly. How can you and I hasten the return of the Lord? The Great Commission. The Great Commission. Jesus says, and I, I know some of you may know her, her name is Julie Arendt. She has a ministry in Omaha called Global Friends, and it's quite an extensive ministry, but she Primarily, is ministering to students who are coming to the universities to study from other countries. She's led a lot of Muslims to Christ. She's led a lot of Hindus and Buddhists to Christ. But what motivated her when she was a young girl was she heard a message on, Jesus said, when the last person comes to me in faith, then I'm coming back. She said, I want to lead that last person to Jesus. Now, I'm saying that because, in a sense, that's that's kind of what, what Peter is talking about. From a human perspective, as we share the gospel and live out the gospel, and people respond, as all of that is, is part of God's plan, that, in effect, hastens the return of Christ. There's no other way to understand that. I mean, waiting for and hastening. I mean, how do you and I hasten? Well, by doing what he wants us to do, by representing him, in all ways, to a fallen, broken world. That's our primary assignment. That is the Great Commission project. Although it's, it's just, this is one of the very few places in the Bible where you see that. Waiting for is all over the place. I mean, that's just it's often connected to hope and all of that. But Peter draws in another in, in the grammar of the Greek language. These are participles of manner. They explain how you ought to be living your life of godliness and holiness by waiting and hastening. And it's just, it's, it's a really interesting construction for the coming of the day of God. It's another <clears throat> modification or expression of the day of the Lord. And then he summarizes again what he taught in, in verse 10. Set on fire, dissolved the heavenly bodies, etc., and in verse 13, it's the only time outside of the book of Revelation in the New Testament. It's the only time you see the phrase, new heavens and new earth. 
It's in Isaiah 65 and 66. It's in Revelation 21 and 22. But it's not in any of the other books or epistles of the New Testament. So Peter uniquely gives emphasis to that. And so what he's, um, what he's doing here is quite interesting. He's kind of summarizing the day of the Lord. I'll just put it up he's, he's kind of saying the day of the Lord is this cataclysmic phrase that applies to all of these events about the return of, of Jesus. And all of the, let's just kind of do it this way, a series of judgments, which are followed by blessings. And just, I'm not going to go over it, but all of those phrases that deal with day of the Lord judgments, the gloom, the doom, the, the, the cosmic disturbances and all of that, followed by blessing. That blessing begins with the second coming of Christ. Which then leads to the kingdom that Jesus sets up, which I'm running out of space, which then leads to the new heaven and the new earth. I'm not going to write all that out. But. So he's telling us that the day of the Lord really encompasses, because he calls it in that verse the day of God, but encompasses all of this. See, the day of the Lord is a concept that encompasses all of the events associated with the return, with the end of, 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 of the age and the return of Christ and so on. Judgment is always followed by blessing, or you could put it this way. Blessing is preceded by judgment. This is God's final judgment on his rebellious planet. If you want a detailed summary of that, it's in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18. But it's followed by blessing, which commences with the second coming of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, and then the inauguration of the new heaven and the new earth. <clears throat> and so, I mean, it's, it's really quite, quite astonishing, actually. In just a couple of verses, Peter summarizes the whole, whole thing of what's going to happen using key phrases. And if you're not familiar with those phrases from the other parts of the scripture, you kind of miss the point of what he's saying. But the new heaven and new earth is taught in three places in the Bible and only three places. Isaiah 65 and 66, 2 Peter 3, and Revelation 21 and 22. They're the only three places it's mentioned and taught. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I just, Lord, why don't you tell us more about that? The new heaven, the new earth. More about that. What's it going to It's not prophesied anywhere, is it? I mean, other than what I just said, Isaiah 65, 66, 2 Peter 3, and Revelation 21 and 22. They're the only places that talk. I got into Matthew the other day, and much of it is uh, Jesus talking, explaining. Yeah, yeah. I really found that pretty rich. Yes. What's the... Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. 
But that's Sermon on the Mount. But the Olivet Discourse, uh, yeah, that, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, is the end time discussion of Jesus. Now, I, I mean, this is in the Bible, so I took a lot of time, well, not a lot of time, but I took some time with this because the, 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 Peter's making the point all of these truths should affect how you live now. And that's the main that's the main point of why he brings this up. Don't let people mock and scoff at you when you say, I believe Jesus is coming back. And that time and history and everything's gonna to come to an end, and the kingdom of God's gonna be inaugurated. Oh, that's silly. Nobody believes that anymore. Two thousand years ago they were saying this, and it still hasn't happened. I mean, just think when Peter wrote this, it was in the sixties, about thirty some odd years after Jesus went back to the Father, and here people are still mocking this guy. As a matter of fact, I don't think probably there's any particular aspect that people make more fun of than the, the, all the stuff about prophecy. They're saying, that's stupid. Nobody believes that stuff anymore. That's silly. And yet uh, it's pretty consistently taught in every book of the Bible. Every book of the Bible speaks about, in some way or another, something about the future and the return of Christ and the end times and all the stuff that's associated with in detail. So, okay? Well, it is a new phrase talking about the new heaven and the new earth. I, mm-hmm. That's new to me. I know I, I there was always the heaven, but I didn't understand the new earth part of it. The Greek, I don't know if I should get into this, but the term new there is kine. Um, If you really want me, I did, but I want to show you something here. It's kind of interesting. It's K I A N, we would pronounce it with an E and bring it into English. It's kine, which means. a new quality. It's not ex nihilo. God's not re- creating something new out of nothing. It's the earth remade to new quality. He's not going to pull off a whole new creation of a whole new earth ex nihilo. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, some of you are looking at the deer in the headlight look. I mean, do you understand that word kainai? Kaine is, is the word for new, both new heaven and new earth. It's not a brand new where he's creating something out of nothing like he did at the original creation. It's a an earth that's cleansed of sin. It's an earth that's cleansed of all the evil and manifestations of the rebellion that's going been going on since Genesis. Yet in verse ten he says the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and works will be burned up. I mean, suggest to me there's a lot of destruction taking place. Well, not that, but that's that's correct, but it's a remaking. He's not creating new matter. I'm I'm, I'm trying not to be real scientific, I but I'm also but... it's a quality. It's it's a, an earth of a new quality in the sense that it's it's an earth that has been cleansed of all evil and all manifestations of rebellion and say the satanic rebellion which which he's led on and primarily led on this planet. So, I mean, yeah, there's going to be a cleansing and a fire or with fire or by fire or by means of fire or whatever 
however we want to translate that. But um, <clears throat> I probably shouldn't have gone down that bunny trail, but I couldn't help it. It was interesting. Thank you. But it's, it's, it's why it's the earth as we, this is probably the right way to think of it. The earth as it was in Genesis 1 and 2 is what the earth will be again in Revelation 21 and 22. You know what I mean? Where it's, there's perfection, there's innocence, there's purity, there's holiness. But unlike Genesis 1 and 2, where there's the possibility of sin and rebellion, in Revelation 21 and 22, that'll be gone. There's no chance. There'll be no more Satan, no more evil, no more sin. And uh, they're the kinds of things that are just very briefly touched upon in Revelation 21 and 22. Um, it's just, and it even says, and the doors will always be open. You know, which is kind of an interesting way to just think. We don't have to close our doors. I think probably it'd be right to say in the new earth, there won't be any locks on our doors. We won't, any security business people, you won't be employed in the new earth. You're going to have to find something new to do. <laughs> Me, I'm being a little facetious there, but uh, the new quality, the new kainai of, of, of the earth will be uh, no evil, no sin. I, I just, uh, I, I know we've talked about it before. I cannot, I cannot imagine what that's going to be like. I, I don't know if you, I can't, I can't envision that. Where I'll never, ever have an impure thought again. I'll never, ever, ever have an impure, ungodly, displeasing motive. I'll never, ever commit a sin again. And neither will anyone else that impopulates. That's, that's unimaginable to me. I mean, I just, I can't, I can hear the words, I can read it in the Bible, but to try to really envision what that is going to be like. Well, if you, if you go down to the scrapyard and you see all the rusty, twisted, mangled pieces of iron and stuff, and then you, you smelt the iron mm. and pour out fresh, perfect iron, that's a, that's yeah, it's, it's cleanse of all the junk and all the, all the impurities. All the impurities are gone and, and, and you have new, fresh steel. So this, it came from, came from World War II days, but it's re remanufactured and, mm -hmm. and now, it's, now it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm not a metallurgist at all, but it's uh, people say, you know, they take the, the gold or the silver out of the earth and it's dirty and crusted with all kind of junk, but they gotta, they gotta get it to a temperature somewhere close to three thousand degrees uh, Fahrenheit, as I understand it, and then all the junks coming to the surface, and you gotta skim it off and get rid of it and all that. And even even that, they said you still don't have a hundred percent pure silver pure, but you're close. It's in the ninety ninth percentile. Uh, when the Lord cleanses us, it's not 99%, it's 100%. Amen. That's just, uh, that's just inconceivable. I would guess that the people we have offended during our lives, uh, once they see, once there's no sin, they will, they will see us as, you couldn't help it. The, the, the influence of sin, the power of sin in your life, you 
couldn't help it. I see you. I see you as you are now, and I forgive you. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a good comment. Uh, it, yes, but it's. I mean, I just I, it, there's so many things about life now that will not be a part of the kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth. No discrimination. No hatred. No arguments. No divisiveness. <clears throat> Not going to be there. Jim, in light of that, are we going to have, as you understand the scriptures, a free will? Um, I'm going to answer it the way Augustine answered it in the 400s. Okay? You have free will according to your nature. Our nature now is a nature of potential sin and rebellion against God. In the new heaven, new earth, in the kingdom, when we have a glorified, resurrected body, our nature then will be perfect, sinless. So you have free will according to your nature. You will choose to worship, adore, and love, and sing praises to God every day because you want to do it, not because you're being forced or you feel guilty or your pastor is saying, did you do that today? If you didn't, God doesn't love you anymore. That's, I'm making that up. But so that's my answer to that. There is free will, but it's free will according to your nature. That's how August, Augustine taught, and I think he's I think he's right on there. That's the right way to think about that issue. It seems to me. Did that answer your question? In that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's a, it's a theological question. Yeah. Right. But to process it in that way, um, it, it seems to me that's uh, one of the most helpful ways to think about that. Kind of difficult issue. We won't rob. So on. on oh no! I, he had his hand up. Rob, go. That raises all kinds of questions, and I guess my question is: if we read uh, the Olivet Discourse, if we read Revelation twenty-one, twenty-one, twenty-two, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, will we get answers to questions like, where, what happens to heaven? The people in heaven all come back to earth and the day of the Lord what happens to hell and what happens to the devil well uh, in in that same section it would be in chapter 20 of Revelation that question is answered it's uh, the lake of fire uh, and that's where uh, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire all of the judged at the great right throne judgment which is the final judgment you and I won't be there uh, those who are redeemed are not at the great white throne. That's for those who rejected the Lord. Any one of his revelations have rejected him, they will also be cast in the lake of fire. And all the demonic hosts, the false prophet, the Antichrist, I mean, they're just very specific. And, and, and then the text also says, and death will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the penalty for sin. So, I mean, that's all the language that that I think God can muster that all all demonstrations, all manifestations, <clears throat> all tactile evidences of evil and sin are gone in the new heaven and earth. It's gone. It's obliterated. It, it will never, <clears throat> ever, ever raise its ugly head again. So if you go to heaven, do you stay there? Or do those in heaven come back to this new earth? Oh, no. The, the Old Testament saints church saints and tribulation saints all will populate the new heaven and new earth. They'll all populate. Now, there is some discussion about the new Jerusalem and 
is, is that just the church? I mean, I, I don't particularly want to get into that discussion right now, but all saints will populate the new heaven and new earth. Both, yeah. Both the new heaven and new earth, yeah. Uh, and again, without getting into the, I don't want to start that bunny trail, but the, the, the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is described in Revelation 21 and 22. It's a 1,500-mile cube. But let's not get into that. But, you know, I don't see any reason why, and I don't know, we're thinking thoughts here that the Bible does not specifically address, but I do not see any reason why in the new heaven and new earth we will not be discovering and exploring and, and having dominion over God's creation, including the stars. I don't see any reason why we couldn't anticipate interplanetary travel. Can you? Can you? Or exploring the depths of the ocean. Or exploring the depths of the mountains. I mean, uh, other planets. I, I see, no, I mean, I'm, I know I'm getting into the realm of what is almost science fiction, but it isn't because you just have to ask this question. Why did God create all that? And we know he created it for his own joy and pleasure because he loves beauty and that's why he created it. Uh, Phil Yancey has in one of his early books, I was just wondering, he has a chapter on, I was just wondering, you know, there's some of the deepest parts of the ocean that tell me it's off the coast of Japan, uh, about seven to eight miles deep. There are creatures down there that no human has ever seen until very recently with some of the equipment they came down. And so he asked, just who enjoyed the beauty of those very unusual complex creatures for centuries and perhaps millennia. What's the answer to that question? God. God created them. God enjoyed them. So if you and I in our glorified resurrected bodies will will populate the new heaven and new earth, why wouldn't we and why wouldn't he want us I like Robin Hood so um why would we not go on exploring and have dominion over those parts of his world? <clears throat> now we're getting, can I leave this now? But, okay, Woody. Uh, you can leave it now. But, just hold on for a minute, okay? Uh, on our way over today, we were discussing uh, that we don't retain everything that you teach uh, but we retain some of it, and, and and we're grateful for it, and it's a blessing to us, and it's like the frosting on the cake, in that um, we've made a decision to turn our life and our will over to Jesus Christ. Right. We believe in the Gospels, and we, and we believe everything that we're being taught uh, that we can retain, mm-hmm. and, and it was a like a decision that we made. That's right. And, uh, and all, all three of us uh, recognize that. And so when we walk out of these meetings, we don't we don't have it all, and we don't need it all. No. That's what no. I'm trying to say. Okay. So it's okay if you want to move on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for giving me permission to do that, Woody. I really appreciate it. I, I have just a quick question. Yeah, go ahead, please. Satan will be released after a thousand years. I know there's different interpretations. Right. Well, people in heaven revert back to sin to follow him? Or is no. there the people who remain? They're, they're the people who, I mean, you are getting into a complex theological issue there, but uh, in that 
many rebellion that Satan uh, musters when he's released at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the general thinking is that there are two, two groups of people that populate the millennial kingdom, the, the church who returns with Christ, but then those who are alive, they do not get their resurrected glorified bodies. They will continue, you know, progeny will continue having children, and it is the children of some of those that will join that rebellion. Okay. That's the way most people think about that final rebellion. It's very short. God snuffs it out. It doesn't last. But, you know. And I think one of the reasons God does that is the uh, even with a thousand years of Jesus reigning, those who have not uh, personally trusted Christ are still capable of rebellion against him, mm-hmm. which is what you see in that final rebellion, and God snuffs it out. Look at the last couple of verses of Second Peter 3. Therefore, now the therefore is based on everything he's taught. Since you are waiting for these, for what? For the new heavens and new earth, which takes you back to the preceding verse. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks uh, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, and you would agree with that, right? right? Paul's letters, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. And one of the things you ought to do in your Bible is circle our brother Paul and other scripture and draw a line between them. Because Peter has just said what? The 13 letters of Paul are scripture. As people twist and are ignorant of Paul's letters as they are of all other scripture. So Paul's 13 letters are scripture. That's a very important passage. So what Peter is simply doing here is what what we've been talking about, that this future promise, this teaching about the future, this teaching about the day of the Lord, Judgment followed by inestimable blessing. The new heavens and new earth should motivate how you live now. Live your life at peace, without spot, without blemish. And and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. What patience of our Lord? What does that mean? His waiting. He continues to wait. Why? So that more can come to salvation. That's what he taught us earlier in the chapter. And he says, that's what Paul said. That's what Paul reminded us of. And that's one of the major themes of Paul's, in Paul's teaching. It's in Romans 8, it's in Colossians 3, it's in Galatians 5, that God delays and waits and is patient so that more can come to faith. And that's all he's doing. That's all he's summarizing. And so, again, I mean, one more time, about the fourth time I've said it, these future promises that God's making to us should affect how we live now. And it's just that, um, it's that wonderful motivation that you want to see Jesus and you want to hear him say to you, well done, well done. That's, I, I pray that the Lord will say that to me. I want him to say to me, well done. You've done what I've asked you to do whatever that stewardship of life is. And it's, uh, it's to motivate us to, to be the kind of men, we're all men, so I'll use that specific term, to be the kind of men God wants us to be. 
He takes care of our past. That's what that's what justification, cleansing, and forgiveness is all about. Now we're future-oriented people. We're always looking toward Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, I, I press on to the high calling, which is Jesus. I don't look back. And I, I just, with men, it is so important that we do that because most of I, I would stand in line at the first deadline. My life before 1972 was an ugly life. But I don't look back. When I came to the faith and, and the things the Lord helped me to get, get beyond me, I had to learn what Paul says, I don't look back. I look forward. Because Jesus has taken care of the stuff in the back. My past is gone. I had to deal with things, but my past is gone. The guilt's gone. The shame is gone. Now I'm a new creature in Christ, and I press on. And that's what Peter is saying. That's how you should live your life. Because he, Jesus, has enormously significant things in store for you. All encapsulated in this remarkable new heavens and new earth teaching, which is so, so unbelievably majestic. And the Bible has not told us a great deal about it. I don't think we have a category to understand it, in my own opinion. Yes, Fred. And, and we're not looking back because God has forgotten that's right. Well, yeah, it no longer holds it against us. No longer a barrier between him and us. Absolutely. So if he doesn't, we should. That's right. Because that's what the evil one. That's right. What happens? Absolutely. I think that's one of Satan's most effective tools. I really do, is to get us to feel guilt about our past, or even if, you know, if we're still struggling, which all of us do with certain sins, certain areas, and we fall and stumble, and we just say to the Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I did it again, but I know you have forgiven me. That's what I call spiritual, it's not my idea, it's Bill Bright's idea, it's spiritual breathing. We exhale in confession, inhale the love and forgiveness of Christ. That's a daily, I do it probably every minute of the day, some days it seems. But that's, and then if you feel, feel guilt about it, that guilt's not from the Lord. It's not just guilt, but it's also, are you truly forgiving and mm. forgetting transgressions? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, your own personal transgressions. That's right. And those against you. Yeah, that's right. And those against you, that's right. I mean, you, it, we have to, this isn't original with me either, but we have to see all these things the way God sees them. And it, you know, like Fred said, the Bible says that the Lord not only forgives, he forgets and buries them, I think it's in the Psalms, buries them in the deepest parts of this ocean. And Corey Tenbim added to the Bible and then puts a sign there, no fishing. That's not in the Bible, but it's a nice appropriate way to think about it because God, from God's perspective, those things are past and gone. Don't bring them up. Don't wallow in Get beyond them. Think Philippians 3, 13 and 14. I don't look back. I look forward. That's what Paul says to summarize it. And it is um, it's an effective tool. And it's an effective tool in human interpersonal relationship. Where people that want to really want to hurt you, they bring up stuff of the past. And dredge it up and hold it before you. 
And the answer to that, I mean, if you have to deal with things, I mean, you know, there's residue and consequences of sin, but you deal with those. No, no, no. My perspective, Jesus, forgive me, from Christ's perspective, that's my past. And I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward. And it's to see all of this stuff the way the Lord sees it. And that's that's our hard thing. Because I know, I maybe you're not like me, but there are times when you really feel in a self-pity mode and you jump into that pit of self-pity and you just dredge it all up and wallow in it and you just enjoy it for a very short time. And then you just, I got to get out of this pit. And that wallowing, and you, know, you, you send invitations all to your friends. I'm having a self-pity party tonight. Come join me. I made that up. But, you know, just it's that kind of, you no, know, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And that's what Peter is just, he's drilling this into these people. Um, you are forward-looking, forward-thinking, redeemed people. Live that way. And man, I'm telling you, I've said this, uh, and I've said it to a couple of you individually in times we've talked, but if you do not have the assurance of your security and your salvation in Christ, you're never going to grow. You're never going to grow. You must have that certainty of who I am in Christ, that certainty of my, of my identity in Jesus. And now I'm, the past is gone. I'm, I'm roaring into the future with triumph and victory because of Christ. This weekend we celebrate the seminal event of our faith. Christmas only has meaning because of Easter. Christmas is a wonder. It's my favorite time of the year in, in terms of the family and so on. But it would be meaningless if it weren't for Easter, right? Easter is the triumph. We call it Good Friday because that's when Christ died for our sins. But that too without the resurrection isn't important. But with the resurrection, his death, burial, his death, burial, and his resurrection, they are all linked. And the resurrection proves that the Father accepted the sacrifice, raised him from the dead, conquered death. Ah, oh, just incredible stuff. My favorite hymn, it's an old hymn, probably don't sing it anymore, we're 7-Eleven people, but the um, is Up From the Grave He Arose. That, I love that hymn. It's my favorite hymn of Easter. It's a song of triumph, and that's that's what we celebrate. So can I close out the book? Is that possible that we're going to finish another book? (laughs) (laughs) Just look at how he closes this out. You therefore, dear uh, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. That's what chapter 1 was all about, the heretics, the false teachers. And lose your own stability. I love how the ESV has translated that. (coughs) Lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing in a class like this. That's what you're doing when you hear your pastor preach. You're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Then be glory be now, now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Most epistles end with a statement, a little doxology. And that's, this is no exception. But again, you have the two. You have a, a negative and you have a positive. Don't be carried away by error. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Negative, positive. Don't be carried away by error. Don't be, don't get, you could translate that, don't, don't get off course, don't get off track by error. How do I prevent that from occurring? By growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Peter has taught us sound doctrine, and sound doctrine produces godly living. That's what he's saying. This is a great little epistle. It's one that's not studied a great deal, but uh, that is no longer the case with you men. You now know it and can write a thought paper on it. And my thought paper for this class would be, how does the day of the Lord doctrine affect how you live now? But you won't do that. So Every now and then, Glenn does one, and Fred does one for me, and I enjoy reading them. But I don't want to give any impression of having pet students in my class. <laughs> what did you say our next study was on? We're going to study Titus. We're going to study Titus. Little New Testament book. It's one of the pastoral epistles, we call them. Written right near the end of Paul's life. So I have a lot of introductory stuff. I'll send it out to Joe tomorrow morning, to Fred perhaps Friday, <clears throat> and he'll send it out to you. Okay. Lord, I just thank you for these men. Thank you for the opportunity and privilege you give to me to lead them and for the privilege of teaching and sharing the word of God. Uh, what a blessing that is personally for me and to see them grow, as Peter just stated, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the, the real blessing of teaching, to see men grow in understanding of the grace of God and to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, and what he has planned for each one of us. That's what we've been studying. So I pray for them, and I give all of us a blessed Easter weekend as we celebrate and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the linchpin of our faith. If that were not true, we'd be the most foolish, silly people on earth. But because it is true, we are overcomers. We're conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Because we're on the winning side, we are a part of what Jesus Christ is doing in this world. So help us to represent him well in his precious name we pray. Amen.